We're starting a new series today in Philippians, and we're going to be in Philippians for four weeks, okay? There's four chapters in Philippians. We're going to take one chapter a week, uh, which means that we're not going to be exegeting the verses of uh, Philippians. We're just doing the themes of each uh, chapter is what we're doing, and we're talking in terms of joy, Okay, and I think it's a really appropriate time for this message. I had uh, some people from first service, particularly one person said, that message was exactly what I needed to hear and what I believe Parker Ford needs to hear right now. And did you plan that uh, recently? No, God had that planned out, yeah. And that was spot on, and I I, I kind of agree. I think this is a timely message for us right now um, and that the Lord had that uh, figured out. and so this is about basically, in essence, um, the, the book of Philippians, you know, is one of those books that people just turn to in times of difficulty all the time. And it's, it's a cheery book in some ways, which is funny because in many ways what it's talking about is suffering. And yet it has like kind of the, one of the most lighthearted or, or uh, joyful perspectives of all the pages of Scripture but it talks about that from a, from a perspective of suffering. And, and uh, what we're going to be doing each week is look at the theme of Paul talks about joy all the way through the, the, the book. Um, but there's kind of different ways in which we encounter joy and different perspectives um, that allow us to have joy in the midst of our difficulties. And so today we're talking about joy and mission. Um, and, and when we engage in the mission, how God brings us joy. And so that's from chapter 1. So we're going to read chapter 1 right now, and uh, you know how we do. We're going to stand in honor of God's word as we read, please. <clears throat> Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. Overseers is also the same word as bishops or elders, leaders. It's all kind of one category in Scripture. And then deacons, diakonia, means servant. Okay? Uh, Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord of my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, 
whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all, I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent and I hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. May God add blessings to the reading of his word. Have a seat. We have all experienced the moment when people see things through the lens of how they want to see things, right? People can kind of tend to see things not as they are or not as others see them, but how they want to see them based on whatever their desire is. If someone has a martyr complex or a victim complex, they will always see themselves as being inappropriately treated. If someone has a hero complex, they will always see themselves as the center of everything. You know, when it comes to injustice, if if there is people who don't want to see injustice, even when they're being unjustly treated, they won't stand up with courage. And others who want to see injustice everywhere will see it even when things aren't unjust. Uh, let me give a couple examples of that. Um, you know how horrible uh, the, the whole thing of racism is that we experience in our world right now. There's churches burning down south. And, like, and some of the rhetoric you hear from people about like, oh, that's not really racist. <laughs> Whatever. You know, there's so much of that junk. In the midst of that, when people use circumstances like that in order to exploit, then it discredits the reality of what's happening in the very real problems. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I was down to see my father-in-law. I was at the hospital down in Lancaster City, and I was in the car, and I had just parked, and I was talking on the phone with someone, and I was getting ready to get out of the car and go inside when I saw a, a young guy um, a, an ethnic minority on his skateboard and he was skating down the, the road and a, and a police car came past him and he yelled something at the police car and the police car pulls over and rolls down his window. So he goes up to the window and, he st- and, he, and he's kind of hitting on the police car and he's saying stuff. And 
I don't know what the exchange is. I can't hear it. But I see him pull out his, from behind his back, he pulls out a video camera and he holds the video camera on a selfie stick out like this and starts kind of kicking the side of the car and saying something. And the, the, the police car pulls away, rolls up the window and keeps going as he's yelling stuff and trying to skate after it. I don't know what went down in that moment, but what I do know is, is there was something that wasn't okay, right? And the problems that, the very, very real problems of racism that happen in our world, in our country right now, very real issues can get complicated because you have a young guy who wants to see himself on YouTube with all the other hype that's going on and messes up the real issue, distracting from the real issue right? The, you, know, you know the problem. I'll tell you in the, the other side of that in a minute. But here's another example of that in a completely different realm. We know that there's financial impropriety all the time. And so there's a legal system put in place in order to help people when they're being unjust, unjustly treated. But we've seen that abused all the time, correct? I was in a car accident a long, long time ago. I was in college. And I was on my way to a soccer game, and there was a person in front of me who, uh, they were in the other lane, and they had a turn signal on, and they were, they were pulling, and then yanked back into my lane, and I, I put on the brakes, didn't stop until I had no idea I even hit them. The only damage to either one of our cars is that there was $14 worth of damage to my car because the blinker shield cracked when it touched their bumper, okay? And that's the only thing that, that I heard, and they were, got out of the car, I'm really sorry, I was all over the place. I thought I was turning here, so I turned back in the lane. I, you know, all this. That night, I get a call from the person because we exchanged information. And they said to me, hey, I went home and talked to my parents. My dad said that we're going to sue you. I said, okay. What? Like, for what? I said, well, we're going to sue you for medical damages. Medical damages? I didn't even know our cars hit. You know, how could there be medical damages? It's the last I heard from them for a while until it was a couple years later. My parents and Jen's parents were meeting for the first time. We were at our house. We had them over for dinner. I was still living at my parents' house at the time. Jen and I were dating. They were having dinner at my parents' house, and a policeman comes to the door to serve me papers. I was being sued for $50,000 for medical damages for this person. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Seven years down the road, the thing finally got resolved. And what they found out was this person really did have medical damage. But it wasn't from this accident. It was from a previous accident that wasn't even a car accident. And they didn't have insurance to cover it. So when this happened and the person got home, dad said, here's a moment. Let's cry injustice, you know. And so the lens at which this person was seeing the world, trying to see, now this was an opportunity to take advantage of a situation. The problem is, is that there is massive injustice all over our world, and the system which we use to, to try to keep those things in check gets messed up every time we try to see things inappropriately and manipulate that. On the flip side of it, the, the, the other side of it is that there are moments when people are treated terribly unjustly, and they won't stand their ground, and they won't say anything. They won't do anything because they're afraid of making waves. They're afraid of, of, of saying what is happening. They're afraid of being the whistleblower or afraid of the inconvenience that it will cause their life. And then worse than all of that is when we see someone being inappropriately treated and we, like those who went by the, the man on the side of the road before the Good Samaritan came along, it's too difficult for us to say anything. And we watch the injustice around us and we don't do anything about it. And there's whistleblowers, false whistleblowers going off over here and then very real issues that we don't take responsibility for in society or personally. And it's all about one thing. It's all about what we're looking to see. 
See, if, if the goal of my life is for comfort, if the goal of my life is for my own satisfaction and, and my own pleasure, then when something is happening to someone next to me or there's a problem with how everything's working, I may not want to confront that or deal with that because it's going to mess with my pleasure and my comfort. And if it's messing with my pleasure and my comfort, I don't really have interest in that. As a matter of fact, I want to avoid that at all costs. Paul, when he wrote this letter to the church in Philippi, he was writing it in a Roman world. The the general understanding of of not just injustice, but of suffering. Suffering is a step under injustice. Injustice is one form of suffering. But there's all forms of suffering in our world. And and the, the Roman perspective on suffering back in Paul's day is this is that the Roman gods were coming to get every human. And at the end of their life, every one of them would finally be caught by the Roman gods, and they would bring them to death. And the suffering was a reminder that they were coming to get us. That was the perspective. It was a reminder. That difficult thing that just happened where you wanted life to go this way and things seemed to be working, but then this difficult thing happened to you, this injustice or whatever, that's just a reminder that difficult things happen and ultimately your life will end with destruction. And so suffering was bad. It was the evil. It was, it was what we feared of from the gods. And that was what the, the situation that Paul was speaking into. What Paul agreed with about that was the fact that death was coming and that it was coming quickly and that all of us would face it. The response that the Romans had was kind of similar, actually, to the response that Paul has, which is a a response uh, that's kind of like carpe diem. Seize the moment. Live with what you have. Here we are. What we know we have is today, and we're to seize that moment. The difference isn't about whether or not we believe that we should grab a hold of the moments we have. The question for us is about what does it mean to grab a hold of the moment that we have? In other words, what are we trying to accomplish with the time that we do have? How will I know whether I actually did seize the moment, whether I lived my life the way I should or the way I shouldn't? I don't know. I don't, there was some song that was on the radio. I don't know how long it was ago. All I remember was it was someone wrote a song about their dad was passing away, and so he, that he wanted him to live his, his moments like they were the last. Somebody knows what this is about, so we went skydiving and... Tim McGraw wrote it about Tug? Really? I should know this. Okay. So Tim McGraw wrote a a song about Tug McGraw. And this is, okay, here we go. And um, I should have asked this before I got into the message. I wasn't planning on talking about this. That's why. Um, And so anyway, but the whole song was, since this might be your last day, experience everything. Right? experience it all, go jump off cliffs, do all the things you would have done, spend your money, have fun, live large, because this is the end. Burn it while it's there. Suffering gets in the way of us living that way. Suffering says, I just wasted an extra 20 minutes of my life because instead of getting on the 422 ramp headed east, I couldn't. And so I had to go to Royersford and go across that bridge where everyone else is going. And I couldn't even go across Linfield because that bridge is closed too. Amen. Ah, saying amen, we're a bunch of Romans thinking it's about our pleasure. Why would God have us take the detour? If my life is about my comfort and my pleasure, then those roadblocks in my life 
stand as evil that keeps me from fully experiencing life the way I should. And then injustice and suffering is all about my loss and I get angry. Paul speaks into this situation something very different. He offers us not just a different perspective on suffering, but a different perspective on life. The reason that his view of suffering is different is because his view of life is different. It's not because he has an ability to overcome the feelings of injustice and the feelings of suffering. It's because his whole aim and his whole desire in life is far different than that of the Romans. Paul has learned the secret to contentment, and we'll get to that later in the book, in the letter. But what it is that he's saying right here and right now is when our eyes are focused on the gospel, this is what happens. You will gain freedom from self-obsession. You will gain freedom from thinking that life is about your pleasure, your betterment, our sense of advancement of my life being all cushy and honky-dory. If I think that's what my life is about, then anytime I engage suffering, I assume it's a setback. However, there's a different perspective in the gospel. The gospel says, I wasn't created to serve me. I'm not the creator. I'm not the dad. I'm not the king. I'm not the master. I'm the servant. I'm the child. I'm the vassal. I'm the creature. And what the gospel says is instead of living as if I'm the one in charge and I'm self-serving, the gospel gives me freedom from self-obsession and allows my heart to readjust and my mind to readjust. What the gospel says is I can serve Jesus instead of me. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus has a reason why he wants me to drive through Royersford instead of Linfield. Maybe there's a reason in all of this when someone deals with me inappropriately, when something evil happens to me, that's not God condoning their actions, but I can trust that this is a moment where God still allows me to shine the light of the gospel in this situation. And so this is what Paul says. This is what Paul's going after right now. He's like, this, the whole thing here revolves around something very important. Is that the focus of your life, Church of Philippi, and the focus of my life, if it's focused on the gospel, then what's happening right now can turn to joy instead of grief. This is how that works. Paul is writing right now. Anybody remember where Paul's writing this letter from? Prison. Where? In Rome. Paul's coming to the end. Paul's coming to the end. This is, he's deep into the, the prison letters at this point. And the, he is, he's been through a long haul. And Paul is falsely accused and in prison. How many of us right now, and I want us to think about this. These are Bible stories, but I want us to think about this right now. What would happen? What would happen today, right now, If you did something for the Lord, you shared the gospel with your neighbor or something, and the government came and locked you up and put you in prison. You no longer could see your family. You don't have your property. You can't eat the food that you like to eat. You can't, you don't have the freedoms. You don't have your cell phone. You don't have, you can't, you can't Facebook. You know, all your stuff is taken from you because you shared the gospel. That's a difficult spot to be in. 
Paul's in that situation, and we would anticipate that there'd be some sort of grief coming out of him, that there would be some sort of self-pity in that moment, that there would be some sort of, like, that the tone of it would be a woe is me, or at least a, like, this is really tough. This is one of the lightest, brightest books of the Bible. It's one of the most hopeful books in the entire Scripture. And this is why. It's not just because of his perspective. It's because of the shared perspective that he has with another group of people. Because there's other letters that he writes from prison too that are great letters. But the reason why this one is so cheery is because he knows that this church that he's writing to has the exact same perspective that he does. Whatever it takes for the kingdom of God to move forward. Whatever it takes for the kingdom of God to move forward. See, Paul can sit there in that moment of grief, in that moment of suffering, in that moment of difficulty, and he knows that the kingdom is advancing. He's looking around at the imperial guard of the Roman government and saying, dude, that guy just came to Christ. Look at this guy over here who's sharing the gospel, who didn't have any courage to share the gospel, but now because I'm in this prison, he's sharing the gospel. This is awesome. He goes and says that to some people, and they're like, yeah, but Paul is just really tough and everything. But he says it to the church of Philippi, and he knows that the church of Philippi is going to be excited with him. How does he know that? Because this is not their first rodeo with Paul in prison. See, 11 years ago, Paul planted the church in Philippi. And do you remember how he planted it? It is a crazy moment. Turn with me to Acts 16. You're allowed to use your cell phone to find it if you have, the, have it on your phone too. Verse 8. They were passing by Mysia and they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately... We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I want you to think about this for a second and what this means. This guy is so intent on the spread of the gospel. It's what he's thinking about. It's what he's breathing. He's like, how does the kingdom advance? How do we make God known? And that's what he's seeking for. His whole life is about seeing how the gospel can advance. So much so that in the middle of the night, he has this picture. He has this dream. He has this whatever. And in the middle of the night, he's sitting there and he's picturing this guy from Macedonia who's saying, come see us. If you had a dream last night, think about this. If you had a dream last night and there was someone from North Korea in your dream and they said, come share the gospel with me in your dream, what would you be doing today? I'll tell you what Paul was doing. He was looking for boat tickets the next day. Because he's like, comfort? Security? What's that have to do with anything? I'm a creature under a creator. I'm a vassal and an ambassador for a king. I'm a servant of a master. And my job is to make him known. And I'm looking for the opportunity. And if I see in any way an opportunity beyond what I'm currently in, let's go. That's my life. That's what it's about. And so he has this vision that night, 
the next day, it says immediately we concluded it was God. They just assumed anything that's for the mission, that has to be God. We're going. We're going. They don't, it would have been very easy to be like, was that just a dream or was that God or like what was all that? Dude, it's about the mission. It's got to be God. That's the voice of God. And they go, okay? So they hop on the boat and they, they head out. And so he just takes off. This is about to be the first church plant in Europe, okay? Direct lineage. We come from a European tradition. Direct lineage, first church there. So this church, Park Ford Church of the Brethren, that, that exists here came from Germany, which probably came back. You know, we're looking at like the birth of, of what led to Park Ford Church probably in this moment. You know, isn't that funny? Here's what happens. 11. So they set sail from Charles, and we made a direct, we set sail, uh, so setting sail from Charles, we made direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. I love that. Let's go to the river. There's got to be people praying down by the river. Come to the river. <laughs> you, know, you know how many songs we have? We were just singing one today in All My Fountains. Strong like a river, your love is running through all my fountains. There's so many songs about the river of God come through. And they're like sitting there. You know, there, there's no synagogue there supposedly at this point. You have to have at least 10 strong uh, believing Jewish men at the time in order to have a synagogue. And apparently they didn't have that. They're just like, maybe there's people down at the river praying. Come down to the river. I love it. I was like, yeah, I'm going to get distracted. There's fun stuff there. What's the, uh, the, there's that, um, as we went down to the river to pray, studying about that good, yeah, right? There's something about the river of God, when the river of God is flowing. That's for free, by the way. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Strangely, there's something missing there. What's missing? Yeah, which is why Paul has to say, I encourage men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. Right? Because the women are already praying most of the time. And us guys who are self-dependent and strong and we got it covered and we're so smart. We need to remember that we got to pray. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. I told you I was going to talk about you today. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. This was a businesswoman. Okay, she was a businesswoman and her heart was already toward God. She didn't know the gospel. She didn't know all the details yet, but her heart was in the right place. Because of that, listen up. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I love this. God already had this defined. That's why in Revelation twenty two seventeen it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let all who are thirsty come and drink freely from the water of life. They were down at the river. Her heart was ready. She wanted to drink. The word was spoken. The Spirit was already on her. Her heart was open. The word came. The bride of Christ speaks the gospel. The Spirit of God prepares the ground. We work in partnership with the Spirit. Her heart was ready. Paul was there. Boom. 
This businesswoman hears the word of God, and as she hears the word of God, after she was baptized, in verse 15, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I love that. She prevailed upon us. This wasn't like, hey, if you ever need a place to stay, come hang out. It was like, please come stay at my house. Please, I really want to be a part of this with you. I really want the the mission to launch out of my house. I've been praying that God would send people to our city, that things would change. I really want to be a part of this. I'm selling these goods. I have this family. I, I have this house. I want to be a part of this. And she prevailed upon us. They weren't looking and asking. This was people who were interested, a woman who was desirous and interested in seeing God's mission move forward. And it was her desire to push things forward, that, that created the space, the place of Lydia's house for a place of prayer, for a place of, I mean, for a, for a, ha- a house church. Verse 16, they were going back to the place of prayer. As we were going to the house of prayer, going back to prayer, and this is the way it works. As we're headed to prayer is when all the stuff takes place. We were met by a slave girl, read injustice, who had a spirit of divination, read spiritual warfare, strongholds, oppression, and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Again, injustice. Her difficulties were being exploited by her owners in order to get financial gain. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Is that true? Are they servants of the Most High God who proclaim to them the way of salvation? Isn't it weird that she had this, like, she was possessed and yet what she's proclaiming is true and she's like yelling it everywhere they go and at first I, I kind of wonder if Paul was like that's weird how does she know that or like I wonder if that's of the Lord or what's going on here well this is hilarious what happens next verse 18 it says and she kept doing it and she kept doing for many days Okay, so she just kept saying this over and 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 over. After a while, it gets frustrating. If you've ever had a kid ask you a bunch of questions over and over again, it can get really frustrating. This is Paul's discernment factor. Watch Paul's discernment factor. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. He was like, there's no way that's God. He's not annoying like that. <laughs> and so he turns around and he's like, that's not God, I don't care what you're saying, get out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, their exploitation of this woman, her chains were broken, the chains of injustice were broken by the spiritual declaration of Paul. And now they could not exploit her for gain, and they were frustrated. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Notice this, that when you break the chains of injustice, injustice will come to find you. Paul and Silas knew what they were doing. All right, forget it. Let's go to war. Let's do it. Out. And then instantly, it's on you. You just messed up the whole foundation here, buddy. The stronghold... You're trying to break the stronghold? Well, now it's coming to get you. We're going to take you to prison. They dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. Read racism. 
And they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. They didn't seem to care about that until their financial gain was gone, right? These are accusations that are ridiculous. The only reason they're saying this stuff is because they're losing their money. 22, the crowd join in attacking them. That's what happens. People jump on the bandwagon. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. This is no joke right here. This is, this is very, very difficult persecution. Beating with rods, this is caning. This is flogging. This is, this is brutal, brutal stuff. And they had inflicted many blows upon them, and they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. Now the chains come on you. Now you're unjustly imprisoned. Now you're all beat up because you tried to free, the, free this woman and you tried to break the chains of injustice and now it's on you. The stronghold's coming to get you. That's the way this works. Question is, how do we respond? And you know the story. Here it is, verse 25. About midnight, <laughs> Paul and Silas, read right here parenthetically, Bloody, beaten, black eyes, bruises all over them, possibly broken bones, open sores. We know it because it tells us later. With all of that, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. You bet they were. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. (laughs) The irony or the like... The symbolism here is profound. This is, a, this is a physical earthquake, and yet what's being shook here is much more than the ground. It's the whole reigning spirits of this town, you know, the exploitation of injustice, the power authorities that are struggling and all of that stuff. That stuff's being shaken so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all doors were open, freedom, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. <laughs> Proclaim freedom to the prisoners. 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped because he knew it was coming anyway, so he might as well do it to himself. Verse 28, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. I love this moment. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. I don't think that this fear has to do with earthquakes and with chains being set free. I think the foundation of his life is being shaken right now because he saw prisoners who were unjustly bound and he saw their chains come off. And everything he understood about humanity and everything he understood about life is that they were long gone. And in this moment, they chose to stay put. Why? Why did Paul choose to stay put? I mean... Couldn't he have easily just said, God just set us free. It's time to roll. You know, we got to go take. Why? Because he believed there was a greater chance for the gospel to spread if he stayed. Dude, God just busted my chains off. Why did God do that? They've all been listening to us sing. This jailer's there. What would be the most bold act of love that we could do? This guy's going to die because we leave. If we stay, he won't die. Let's stay. Let's love on this guy. Let's show him how powerful the gospel is, that even when our chains are busted off, we're not afraid of the magistrates. We're not afraid of you. We're not afraid of anyone. As a matter of fact, by the power of God, we're going to love you right now after we've been falsely accused. 
And what happens? He brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? (laughs) He asked the question like right away. He's on it. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Here they are all bloody and beaten up still. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. That's the birth of the Philippian church right there. That's what they know about suffering. That's what they know about injustice. That's what they know about imprisonment. And here Paul is writing them this this, uh, book from a Roman prison 11 years later. And basically, in essence, what he's saying is, I know you guys know what can happen out of the brokenness of a prison cell. And I know that you can rejoice with me. Instead of having a pity party with me, you can rejoice with me and you can encourage. It encourages my heart to know that you are excited with me about the fact that the gospel is advancing in this moment. Partners, brothers, sisters, moving forward toward the advancement of the kingdom. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. You want to bring on the suffering? You want to make my life uncomfortable? You want to lock me up? The light will shine. And when it does, we will rejoice in what God is doing. And that's where he speaks from. There's a few things from that space that Paul speaks that are important. One is you can just hear the deep affection that he has for this church. And that affection is not because they've been so nice to him. It's because of the fact that they have that common bond in the gospel. They are true brothers because they're focused the same way. True family because they're focused the same way. And you can hear that affection all over him. Secondarily, he thanks them for their support. And he reminds them that this affliction, that even though they care about him and they're going to be concerned about his affliction, he's encouraging them with what it is that God's doing, reminding them of, of what it's all about. Now, there's this, there's this one moment in the chapter where Paul wrestles. And you remember here in the wrestle, he's like, I'd love to just die and go home and be with the Lord. Because that's far better. And remember our purpose over here uh, where, where we say we exist to reveal God's nature and to delight in his presence. Paul's like, I want to delight in his presence. And if he just takes me home, that's far better. But there is still revealing of his nature that needs to happen. And so I'm going to stay here. That right now the mission of revealing God's nature is what he's calling me into. And so I'm going to stay put and I'm going to choose to walk through this suffering and knowing that God is moving forward. Now listen, he has one requirement, one basic thing that he asks of them as a church. It happens in two places in this passage in Philippians chapter 1, okay? The first, look with me at at verse 9. It says, And my prayer, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So the the first place he says it is there, and what he's saying is, listen, I'm suffering. We're partners in this. The gospel's moving forward. This is what I'm asking of you, is that love will pour out of every fiber of your being that you won't let your lives be about your own selves. But in the midst of this, you too will let the freedom that you do have, the resources you do have, everything that you have, that it will pour out in love. That it won't be about you. It will be about love. It will go out. 
And we'll do it with wisdom and discernment, that we'll be thinking and praying, God, how can we most profoundly reveal your love and righteousness through our lives in a way that brings honor and glory to Christ, and that that's the focus. There's one other place where he says it in the chapter, and it's over here. This is awesome. You've got to see this. This is, if you flip over to verse 27, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What does it mean for our lives to be worthy of the gospel? Does that mean that if I live in a certain way, then I'm worthy to receive the gospel? Like if I live good enough, then, the, then I'm worth the gospel? No, of course not. The gospel's free. What it means is, is that the investment of the gospel into my life has proven its worth by coming out. My life was worth the investment of the gospel. I have trusted Christ, and now my life shows the value, the worth of the gospel. And how does he expect them to do that? This is how. So that whether I come to you and see you or am absent and hear of you, that you are standing firm, listen, in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them. Listen, this is what Paul's saying. He says, all of us should have one mind, one heart, one spirit. And this is it. This is the thing. That we are united as a church overseeing the kingdom of God move forward whatever it takes, and that in that, in the advancement of the kingdom, our hearts are bound together. We are moving in solidarity toward how God would build his kingdom. We have no fear of that at all. So here's the personal application questions, okay? This is how we close it with these questions. We have to do a little soul searching, okay? What's the point of suffering in your life? What's the tension in your life right now? Think about it. Whatever, think about what the tensions are in your life. Think about the difficulty, that health issue, that relational struggle, whatever it is. If I'm viewing that in light of how I can get past it so that I can get back to a place of comfort, then I am missing the boat. It is an opportunity for the glory of God to be revealed. So that situation is not just random happenstance. It's not the gods of Rome reminding us that they will come and get us someday. Providentially, Father God may not have told that to happen, but he certainly allowed it to happen. And he knows that in it, he is giving us an opportunity to reveal his nature. So what is that thing? And if there is no suffering to speak of in your life, and if you're like, actually, life's just kind of peachy, then I would challenge us that in verse 29, what Paul said to them is, you are called not only to believe, but also to suffer. So the gospel should be taking enough root in our life that it should cause enough action in our life that it should rub up against the strongholds of our world. And there should be moments where there is tension, where there is budding against the mentality of our world. And when that tension is there, instead of rescinding, instead of being scared, instead of pulling back, with strength, we say this is the moment where God overcomes. He overcomes. So, what is the tension in your life? What is God trying to do through it? Secondly, who's your partner in that? 
These guys were partners in the gospel. He was sitting there saying, I know that you're praying for me right now, that I'll have faith so that I deal with these imperial guards the way I need to. Who are you praying for and praying with? Who are you talking to about? How's the gospel advancing through our lives? Are you with somebody in that? You know, this guy right here, I mean, I can't tell you how much he and I over our lives have poured into each other's life, pushing each other to say, will that further the gospel? Will that further the gospel? Part of the reason that these guys taking off is such a a difficult moment is because of that. You know, I rejoice over what it is that God's doing because in this moment, there's nothing that will thwart God's plans. And so we can go joyfully, full of faith, knowing that God's going to do something. But you've got to have a brother and sister who you're saying, who we're working together saying, what's the gospel for in my life? What are we trying to accomplish in my life? That this isn't just about our comfort. We don't exist for us. We exist for him. Who are you partnering with and going after that? Third, who are you supporting in doing that? The Philippian church pouring out their finances, giving, getting on their knees, saying, Man, the colleges, man, they need our help. They're in Indonesia going hard after them. The Benjamins in Texas who are doing that translation, we need to pray for them. We send Tim out with Netzer trying to encourage these other pastors. Are we laboring in prayer? Maybe my brother or sister who's going off to the workplace who we know there's something going on there and we want to pray into it. We should be supporting and praying and financially investing in order to see the gospel move forward. And then this one. What are you afraid of? When you read the papers right now, nobody reads the paper. Well, some do. When you read the internet right now or when you watch the news right now, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of anything? Are you afraid of what's happening in our world? Because I promise you that God is so much bigger than everything that's happening in our world. And with faith, I dare us to stare at that and to look at that and say, this is a moment where the kingdom of God will be built and established. And I choose not to fear our world or fear government or fear someone who believes something different than me. But instead, I stand boldly in faith. Man, a couple guys beat up and bloodied in locks and chains in an inner prison cell. And they're singing the praises of God. Certainly, I can read the news and have faith. Are you afraid of what others think when you're pursuing the Lord flat out? Jesus after him with everything we got it's about him not about me and are we standing in one spirit doing that are we as a church and this is the corporate question they were all the personal questions one corporate question as a church what binds us together what guides us into decision making how do we choose what we want in a church or what we want from our brother and sister or how we interact with each other there's only one right answer all the other ones are bogus. It's not my opinion. It's just what Paul's saying. We would have one spirit, one mind. That means there's only one right answer. And the answer is, it's all for him and the advancement of his kingdom. And if I'm trying to have thoughts or conversations or discussions or interactions that are about anything outside of that, then that is not of God. And it will not turn out to the benefit of our church or the benefit of the kingdom. You and me, our comforts, what we want, what we desire, that ain't what it's about and it won't make us happy because we weren't designed for that. What will bring joy to your life and joy to my life is when I say, I don't live for me and you don't live for you. We live 
for God and the advancement of his kingdom. God, lead us forward and we will go no matter what the cost. Amen? All right, let's pray. I love the tension, Father, of, of Paul. And, and, you know, we, we know that in a couple chapters, Paul will count everything else rubbish for knowing you, you know? And that knowing you is the center. Delighting in your presence is the center. We know that. But I love this thing where Paul says, I could delight in your presence so much more if I would just leave this earth and go to heaven. But I'm choosing not to do that because there's still a revealing of your nature that right now the way to delight in your presence is by submitting to your plan of the advancement of your gospel. And so for the sake of the mission, for the sake of seeing others come to Christ, for the sake of seeing your nature revealed in our world, I will let go of my comforts, even if my very comfort is the presence of the living God in heaven. I will put that on hold in order to submit to your plan for the advancement of your gospel. Man, I love that tension. God, we know the only thing that can satisfy our lives is you. And we know that the only thing that can bring us true joy in the midst of our difficulty is when our difficulty isn't seen through the light of our displeasure, but it is seen through the light of the advancement of your desires. So we lay in front of you our broken, sinful, self-centered lives. We are chained by our own sin. All of us, God. We get stuck on thinking about me. We struggle with that. We put in front of you that right now, Father God, and say, God, like you did for Lydia, it said you opened her heart so she could hear Paul. God, open her heart so that we can follow your spirit. Open the heart of us as a congregation so we can do whatever is necessary for the advancement of the kingdom of God. To see another soul come to Christ to see another cultural stronghold broken down and people set free, to see the image and the glory of God revealed in our day, to see the power of God move forward, and to see that in the midst of a world of chaos and confusion where there's no clarity, that there would be something very simple and very clear, that those who depend on you and follow you stand in a power and a confidence that is unafraid of anything else, and that we can pour out love from the very fibers of our being, from the depths of who we are, by the grace of God. We thank you that you, who began a good work in us, will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That you will not relent, you will not stop, that you are moving and advancing the kingdom, not only beyond us, but in us. And you are working to bring us into conformity with your image. That is all you, God. All you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.